Hello, you're listening to the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. I help put together some of the library's free cultural programs throughout the year and share them with you on the show. This week, Ibram Kendi talks about his National Book Award winning, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. He was at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture this past June, speaking with Khalil Gibran Mohammed, the Schomburg's previous director. Stamped from the Beginning's synopsis makes the claim that racist thought in this country is, quote, alive and well. It has simply become more sophisticated and more insidious. That wasn't hard to agree with before last week. And then racist, bigoted violence erupted in Charlottesville, on account of which a young woman was mowed down by a car. And then our president, in the days that followed, had an apparently difficult time condemning neo-Nazis and white nationalists, decried the removal of Confederate statues from public spaces, and was praised for his, quote, honesty and courage by a former Grand Wizard of the KKK. After all that, the only thing I wonder about in the book's description is the sophisticated and insidious part, because it's hard to recognize any sophistication here, and there's certainly nothing subtle about any of it. Before I listened to this conversation, I was sorry that I hadn't read Dr. Kendi's book yet. And now that I have listened to it, I feel like it's an unforgivable omission. He and Dr. Muhammad explored racism as an idea, as a vast collection of ideas, really, drawn up, disseminated, and entrenched in American thought from Cotton Mather through to today, a process in which nearly every great American thinker, Kendi argues, has been complicit. Their conversation was a deep dive into the history and present of American racism, some of which will be familiar and some of which might surprise you. So here it is. Ibram Kendi, speaking this past June with Khalil Gibran Muhammad at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Well, this is a real treat to be back. Welcome, Dr. Kendi. Oh, it's a, of course, it's a pleasure, pleasure to be in this historic place. Yeah, yeah, and uh, thanks everybody for coming out tonight. Uh, so let's talk about this amazing book. First of all, congratulations on the National Book Award. I know that, um, yes. I know you had to be thinking um, in the wake of Ta-Nehisi's uh, win uh, of a year ago that there's no way they're gonna give the nonfiction <laughs> award to a book like mine, right? That, that, I mean, of course. <laughs> Two straight years, so no, that's not it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, I, you know, I, I knew when I was a finalist, I had a 20% chance, right? There were five <laughs> finalists, and that, that's, what I, <laughs> yeah. that's what I hoped for, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, talk about it, because uh, j- just to warm it up a little bit, so um, this is a hard-hitting book about the history of racism, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about that definitive uh, subtitle in, in a minute, but um, it's hard-hitting, and uh, Kendi doesn't push any punches, and certainly uh, no one is spared in terms of the universe of ideas uh, that uh, fall under the rubric of racist um, in this long history on these shores. Um, but just then to play a little bit with the timing of the work, um, I thought 10 years ago um, when I was doing copy edits uh, on condemnation, maybe not quite 10 years ago, but a while ago, um, that I'd come up with this title, The Condemnation of Blackness, and then this guy from Illinois uh, basically wins the presidency. And I'm thinking, who's gonna buy a book in this day and age when there's a black man in the White House called The Condemnation of Blackness? Like, you know, there's just no market for that. So I came up with this subtitle. I didn't use it in the end. Uh, Fortunately, racism doesn't die, as you will point out. Uh, That was The Condemnation of Blackness before the election of Barack Obama. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
So uh, bring us into the world of thinking through, um, I mean, obviously, I, I want you to talk about the project in its long life, but bring us those final stages. So how are you thinking about this project in the moment in which it's being released? Well, I think the opening sentences of, of, of the prologue sort of describe the moment that I was sort of writing this book in. I mean, I, I started writing this book around the time we all heard his name, Trayvon Martin, and I ended around the time we started saying her name, Sandra Blanc. And so it sort of gives you a sense of, of what I was, what was happening in the world as I was writing. But at the same time, I think Black Lives Matter activists were in many ways educating the country and blasting through this sort of uh, mirage or glass of, of post-racialism that sort of opened the door for people to then want to see what truly exists in this country uh, and this country historically. And I think certainly that paved the way for people to be interested and take seriously a history of racist ideas, a racist, a history that, that comes up to the present. Right. So were you surprised in this sense, uh, because this raises a lot of questions about intended audience, mm -hmm. um, sort of where, because you know, the movements that are known by many people by their hashtags um, are still not very well accepted. Yes. So were you surprised by the critical acclaim that the book received? Without question. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, 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 I knew after my wife read the book and said, said it wasn't half bad. Uh, you know, I, I knew that, that I had a, a, a good chance, you know. Um, yeah, tell them a little bit about your wife. She's in the medical field, right? Yeah, so my, my wife is a physician, an ER doc, uh, and she typically reads novels. Uh, and, and so for her to read the, the, this book and enjoy it, you know, I thought that that was, and she, you know, I thought that that was, um, you know, very telling, and she's very honest. <laughs> uh, and, and so I think, you know, I think uh, the book came out, I think it was reviewed in the Washington Post quite, quite well. Uh, and, you know, some other sort of positive reviews came out after that. But at the same time, you know, when you write a history of racist ideas in which you describe some of the racist ideas that had been articulated from everyone from Thomas Jefferson to Abraham Lincoln to Barack Obama, uh, you know that some people who really appreciate these people uh, and who think that these people are perfect in the way people think police officers are perfect, um, you know, you think there's going to be pushback, right? And so certainly I was expecting. Yeah. So your wife didn't think you were angry. You, you, did, <laughs> you didn't have those dynamics inside. Like, Kendi, why are you so uh, unhappy with with, with this, I mean, so let me ask it a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. So if it opens with a critique of state violence, um, where did the gem of the idea begin? Well, it actually began somewhat more of an intellectual journey. And so I, as Novella described, my first book was on black student activism in the late 60s, early 70s. And I was thinking about writing a book on the origin of black studies which students in the 60s were saying, you know what, all these disciplines, history, psychology, all of these things are racist. We need something completely new in the 60s. And so in, in, in sort of writing that book, I wanted to sort of describe scientific racism and its pervasiveness in the mid-60s. 
And in studying that literature, I found that you had many historians who were really ending that history in the 40s, were saying that scientific racism had become marginal and racist ideas had become marginal in the 40s and the 50s. And so you had black power activists, because many of these students were inspired by black power activists, saying that, no, they're still pervasive, right? And so there was this conundrum. And I realized it was based on how traditional historians and how these activists were defining a racist idea. Mm. And really, that was sort of my entryway into this book. So how did you go from recognizing a gap in both public knowledge and some silences in the historiography, at least as you understood them from what black power activists were learning in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. How did you go from, from a deficit of scientific racism knowledge in the 60s to Cotton Mather in the <laughs> 1600s? Because that's, that's the range we have here. Oh, certainly. I think ultimately, clearly the, the, the first research question that I had to answer was what is a racist idea, mm. right? And so I ended up defining a racist idea very simply as any idea that suggests a racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group in any way. And I specifically wanted to study anti-black racist ideas, suggesting that there was something wrong or inferior about, about black racial groups. And so once I had that de definition, I went exploring, right? And, and I thought that I was, my exploration was gonna end in the, in the early, 1800s, as most of these explorations sort of uh, end. And of course, it, it started continuing back into the 1700s, into the 1600s, and, and it went all the way back into mid-1400s in Portugal. At some point, though, as a writer, you had to strategically think through how much of what I want to say is new mm -hmm. versus how much do I want to synthesize uh, this body of work. Because it sounds like a project started with the new of scientific racism in the 60s, yes, and then went back in time. And of course, you weren't going to be able to <laughs> dig up all of this newness. Um, so at what point did you decide that you wanted to write a definitive history, as you call it? Because that's a different challenge in terms of exploration and then committing oneself yeah. uh, to a 500-page book. So initially, I was thinking about writing a history of scientific racism up to the 1960s. And then we, when I, uh, we, we started thinking about writing a history of scientific racism up to the present. And then in talking to my editors at Nation Books and, and my agent Aisha, who I think is here as well, um, we began to think, well, maybe let's do a, a history of racist ideas in general. And so it really came about during the, the, the editorial process and, 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 you know, and during the process of, okay, how and what is the best way to sort of present this book for readers? Because I think, I think one of the things that I think this book sort of provides is it really shows the origins of almost every major racist idea that we're still sort of dealing with today. And, and, and that type of book had never been produced. And, and so I wanted to um, produce that type of book. Um, and I think I'm, I'm young and stupid, so I thought that I could actually do it. <laughs> well, you pulled it off, so congratulations. Thank you. So let's, let's talk a little bit about this history. Um, and you provide 
what may surprise people are some challenging definitions. Mm -hmm. So you've talked a lot about uh, anti-racism and racist uh, ideas, um, but those, those terms are messier than people might think yes. uh, because the ideas that circulate around those terms are more uh, commonly held mm -hmm. than even folks who are very well um, familiar Schomburg people. You know, this is a very learned audience. So He's help us in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> help us understand uh, the world of Cotton Mather um, as a kind of origin story. Mm -hmm. So Cotton Mather was the first sort of major character in, in Stamp from the Beginning. And he was a Boston theologian who lived from about the 16 uh, 60s to about the 1720s. And he was involved in really the first major racial debate uh, in colonial America. And, and that was the debate over whether black people were capable of Christianity. And he was, as a Christian minister, was arguing, yes, black people are capable of Christianity. And he was typically arguing against slaveholders who were saying that, no, they're not. They're too barbaric. And he made the case that they were capable, that black people were capable, because their souls have the capacity to become white. Uh, and though their bodies may be dark and capable of he permanent- He said that like, that's just okay, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just repeating what the man said. <laughs> like, you know, a lot of other people just would have just closed the book and left the library and had a drink, right? But you kept going, that's just the beginning. <laughs> Well, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he, he believed that black, that black, literally, uh, souls had the capacity to become white, of course, and becoming white, they would become Christian, and to become Christian, they would become holy. And he believed in this sort of Pauline distinction between the soul and the body. And he made the case that all souls are equal, though all bodies are unequal. And so this was the way he made the case that black people, even black people who are enslaved, could and should become Christian. And other historians have imagined that he was articulating anti-racist ideas because you hear the notion of equality. Yeah, all souls, right, are equal, or all souls have the capacity to be equal. But that equality was based on an equality of whiteness, right? And so that was really, what I argue, one of the foundational or, or that was really the origin story of what I call assimilationist ideas. Just to add a little bit of color to this, so Cotton Mather, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> so this, this idea of a white soul um, as a form of redemption and salvation um, plays out not just in the abstract, but it also plays out in the space of uh, the rituals of uh, both ministry and crime and punishment. Yes. So one of the things that scholars found a long time ago is that these execution sermons would often evoke uh, for people facing capital um, punishment, uh, literally being put to death in a world uh, that was very brutish in terms of um, state violence, um, that the evocation of the crime itself was attached to a black man as the devil who possessed 
this soul, and that soul, that body could be white or black, but the devil was clearly a black man. Yes. So that notion of assimilation and that notion of striving towards a white purity worked, there were two sides of that coin. Mm -hmm. um, it reinforced the notion of whiteness as the hierarchical standard, mm -hmm. as well as securing anti-blackness. Precisely, and Cotton Mather is also well known for being one of the proponents of the executions of people during the Salem witch trials. Mm -hmm. And during the Salem witch trials, and of course we see renditions of this on, on our television screens pretty regularly, but what we don't see on those television screens is typically the people who were accusing other people as being witches or even devils, they were coloring those witches and devils black. Or specifically saying that they were, a black man sort of jumped into my room, or a black man is sort of directing these, these witches. And so that was, again, why Cotton Mather was sort of advocating for black people, whether they had white skins or black skins, to become white. Yeah. So we're gonna move across a lot of time, but the way you do that stylistically, uh, I think, is uh, smart and uh, captures um, a kind of archetypal moment through these individual figures. So t tell the audience a little bit about how you get us from Cotton Mather to the present by organizing the book around these individuals and who they are. Sure. So I, again, the, the book, Stamp from the Beginning, is, is, is organized into five sections, and each section has a major character. And each of these major characters serve as sort of a window. Like their lives, their ideas serve as a window to this larger debate between racist and anti-racist ideas or even assimilationist and what I call segregationist ideas uh, in, in colonial America and then America. And, and so there's that sort of narrative arc, right, through the lives of these five individuals. And, and after are, Cotton Mather, yeah. there's uh, somebody, you may know him, Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> um, is the second major character. The third major character was probably the most famous white male abolitionist, William Lloyd Garrison, who was the founding and longtime editor of The Liberator. And he was very important figure because he popularized this idea that this first, the anti-racist idea that we should be demanding immediate emancipation, right, which was uh, quite profound. Um, and when many people were advocating gradual emancipation, you know how like today you have all these people who are advocating gradual equality because they think immediate equality is impossible? Uh, well, uh, at his time, he, of course, was, was challenging those people who were advocating gradual uh, emancipation with immediate emancipation. But he simultaneously thought that slavery had literally made black people into brutes. And so it was the job of the abolitionist to not just end slavery, but to civilize the black brute. And, and then after uh, William Lloyd Garrison, another person you may have heard of him uh, as a fourth major character was W.E.B. Du Bois. And I sort of track his own ideological sort of evolution. I make the case that his double consciousness was actually a double consciousness of assimilationist and anti-racist ideas. And over the course of his life, he became a single, he basically developed a single consciousness of anti-racism by the 1930s. And then the last major character is also somebody you may know, <laughs> Angela Davis. 
Yeah. So this is a really powerful way to structure the book because the biographies of these individuals drive the narrative in the midst mm -hmm. of this incredibly complicated universe of ideas and wrestling with these voices, um, some of whom are completely unfamiliar, and the context that produces those ideas for some readers would be um, very unusual. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, to Kendi's uh, uh, credit, he's able to recreate these worlds effectively um, in a space where you're not getting a traditional whodunit story or what, when, where, and how story. I mean, the, the plot in part depends upon these individuals carrying us from one uh, epic to another. So let's stay with Thomas Jefferson for just a moment um, because in some ways Thomas Jefferson may help to reveal, um, and I think you make this comparison later in the book, just how difficult it has been for statesmen to reconcile uh, their notions of equality and freedom uh, with their suspicions that black people aren't up for the job. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think they, Jefferson was wrestling at a personal and state level, I think, with, with these issues, being simultaneously a major slaveholder and, and, and a statesman. And so I ended up having to sort of figure, you know, Jefferson is one of the more interesting characters in history. We've written so many books trying to figure him out. I described him in, in Stamp from the Beginning as an anti-slavery, anti-abolitionist. Now, <laughs> it gets tricky, y'all. Uh, and and so, what, so what that means is he was obviously against slavery, but he was also against abolitionists. So what he wanted is he wanted slaveholders to dictate the terms of emancipation, right? That's like police officers like dictating the terms of when they, you know. When, that's smart on crime, right? Oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's smart. That's what I keep hearing. Exactly. So, so, so Jefferson, I think, was, was quite divided in that sense. But then he was also at the, at the intersection of segregationist and assimilationist ideas. He couldn't figure out whether black people were inferior by nature or by nurture. And, and really that's the long sort of, I, I try to sort of show this long argument between these two groups, both who are rendering black people inferior, but one are saying, oh, they're inferior genetically and they're permanently inferior. That's the segregationist idea. And, and then assimilationists who are saying that, no, they're, they're inferior because of their climate, Literally, Africa, this hot sun of Africa, blackened not only their skin, but their culture and their ways of life. And so if we just migrate them back up to the cool winds of Europe, they'll become civilized. You know, people made this argument. Uh, or, you know, from a cultural standpoint, uh, you know, black people can be civilized. Um, or that some sort of discrimination literally made them into brutes. And so, really, Jefferson couldn't figure out which one, right? He was sort of in between arguing sort of both sides, partly because both sides benefited him at different times. But this is one of the things, just in your summary right there, um, this, a, a really important point can go missed, and that is that um, one of the problems for Jefferson is precisely his commitment to a kind of scientism <laughs> where it's always an open question. And the reverse simply isn't true. 
the open question of whether Europeans are inferior. Yes. So part of what you're exposing is by asking the question, that is the racist idea to begin with. You yes. can't escape that that history of racism is wedded as you start with scientific racism by asking the question. Because today, in today's age, we think asking the question is a race-neutral proposition. How many black people will likely succeed in this or that, fail in this or that? And we produce tremendous amounts of social scientific research asking these questions as if these questions by themselves don't already presuppose that there's a problem with black people in the first place. I, th I think you're absolutely correct. And, and I think we've wasted uh, hundreds of years of, of, of human intellect trying to answer this question, uh, as opposed to using our human intellect to figure out why there are inequalities between two equal groups. Mm. Yes, that deserves another interview. <laughs> right. I just want to share um, a line about Jefferson, because I think it, it really goes to this uh, contradiction that you uh, expressed so clearly in the work. Did Jefferson really believe black people were smart in slavery and stupid in freedom? Just unpack that just a little bit so they understand. Because there's, I mean, this, this contradiction plays out over and over and over again, and you call it an expression of power later on, and we'll talk mm -hmm. about that too. So, so Jefferson, like other slaveholders, but really he was, he became known in the first few decades of the United States as the preeminent authority on black intellectual inferiority. And you say notes from the, on the state of Virginia from his is book. the most read nonfiction yes. book. It's one of the most read nonfiction books uh, of the, really the early years of, of, the, of, of the Republic. And in that book, he made an unequivocal case that black people were intellectually inferior. He even made the case that Phyllis Wheatley, I know that she's not, that's not poetry. Uh, he made the case that he had never seen a black person articulate more than an elementary thought, right? And so black, black people weren't even elementary school level, right? Uh, compared to the college students, I guess, of, of white people. So then he would make that case, right? And other slaveholders would follow talking about the ways in which black people were basically stupid. But then when skilled black captives would run away, and when they would run away, what slaveholders would do is they would put ads in newspapers describing these black people. And in these ads, people like Jefferson would write, this smart fellow <laughs> or that smart gal <laughs> Don't be fooled by their intellect, right? And so for me, what that meant is when it benefited him, right, black people were stupid, right, in slavery, right? And when it benefited him, black people were smart because he was trying to get back his captive. So you talk a lot about uh, extraordinary Negroes, and you just mentioned one, Phyllis Wheatley. Um, now, I found this part of the book a little troubling. Okay. Not 
because you don't set the context for uh, her poetry, the reception of her poetry. Uh, I want you to talk about sort of the performance of, of uh, legitimacy, how, how her credentials have to be secured. Mm -hmm. But there's a kind of a downside to what you, what you derive from her experience. And it ultimately leads us to wonder, what are we to make of our black heroes and heroes in history? But talk about how in the opening days of Phyllis Wheatley's arrival to the literary stage, what is it that she has to do in order for people to believe that she's as brilliant as she is? So, I mean, he, she, she has to basically prove that she actually wrote the lyrics in her poetry, because in, in her poetry, the, she draws a lot, upon, a lot upon Latin and Greek references, and apparently only people of European descent, or even the elites right, of European descent, can read and understand Greek and Latin. And so it was, it was crazy to think that this young woman right, could, could write this poetry. Uh, and I say young woman, young black woman, because even women were not it was thought of that women, whether black or white, could not read and understand uh, poetry or, 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 or Latin and Greek. And so she, through her, through her slave owners, she went before a panel of some of the most prestigious uh, men in Boston. And this panel of, of very prominent people, like the, the governor, um, like some of the economic and... and, and and political leaders of, of the town had to ascertain whether she actually uh, wrote this poetry. And apparently she passed the test because uh, they interviewed her. And in, in their attestation, they described, yeah, this uncultivated barbarian uh, somehow was able to, you know, uh, that this poetry is actually hers, which I guess black people can be civilized. Uh, and so then she became a model for what black people are capable of, right? And because, again, capability was, 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 was they were, those abolitionists were making the case, you know what, black people are capable of more than slavery. Black people are capable of culture and civilization. And of course, culture and civilization was read as white. And so somebody who had the capacity to sort of uh, engage very prominently in European culture, it was simultaneously stated that this person was a model for what black people were capable of. And so she was very prominent and important in the major transatlantic uh, abolitionist debate of 1773, which was really the first major debate about slavery. You had people like Benjamin Rush stating, look at Phyllis Wheatley. She shows what black people You call are these capable. black exhibits. Precisely. And so that's really what happened. I mean, you know, Phyllis Wheatley and, and later others like uh, Benjamin Banneker and others now really become... This, this, the hard part, right? <laughs> These are our heroes. He's starting to... Yeah, I mean, they, they become black exhibits. So, you know, you have white people who are well-meaning who are putting these people in the spotlight to show what black people are capable of, right? To show black people are capable of, of more than slavery. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, what is this? Like, what's really happening with these people? Oh, yeah, they're being, they're being exhibited. You refer, so there's a whole chapter of black exhibits which sets up, um, in some ways, the foundation of the, the problem of the extraordinary Negro. And yes. there's a 
one extraordinary Negro we certainly will get to talk about. Um, but you talk in this section about uh, black exhibits, and I just want to read briefly. You say, these Americans believe that blacks had some strikes against them. So this is the assimilationist logic. But sometimes use that as a crutch. And they were totally unaware that this viewpoint was not only racist, but hardly made much sense. It was like saying that the game was rigged, but blacks should not let that stop them from winning, and that when they lost and complained about the game being rigged, they were using that as a crutch. Sound familiar? Yeah. But carry, help carry that idea through to more recent times. Um, because it seems to me that when I make reference to sort of what does black history mean mm -hmm. in a place that many would call the temple of black history, where the line between history and hagiography, uh, between celebrating black achievement at the expense of the messiness of our black pasts, uh, that blackness is plural and not singular, um, that in, in many ways, um, this history of Benjamin Banneker and Phyllis Wheatley and Francis Williams uh, and Toussaint Louverture um, comes at a cost. Yes. So talk a little bit about that cost. Well, that cost is, I think, one of the chapters directly after the chapter on black exhibits is a chapter that is called Uplift Suasion. And in this chapter, I describe how by the 1790s, abolitionists were encouraging every single black person on earth to become a black exhibit. Essentially, what they were saying to black people is that you and your behavior, specifically your negative behaviors, are the cause of white people's racist ideas. And so it's on you to defy, by your very action, in front of white people, their racist ideas by defying stereotypes. So watch what you do. Everything you do, you should be cognizant of it. Essentially, they were saying to black people, you need to be perfect, or white people will continue to be racist. And ultimately, this, this concept, or I should say this strategy of uplift suasion would become and still remains one of the dominant strategies that whether you want to call them white liberals or even black people, <laughs> utilize to undermine racist ideas. They are principally concerned with the way black people act. And, and the reason why I bring that up to talk about black achievement is because these very people therefore highlight black achievement to extraordinary black people to prove that, look, you know, this demonstrates, again, what black people are capable of. Again, trying to persuade away the racist ideas of white people. But I show in Stanford in the beginning that the concept of the extraordinary Negro, what it really means is that those extraordinary black people, whether they're Phyllis Wheatley or Barack Obama, are not like those ordinary, inferior black people in Harlem or Jamaica, Queens, where I'm from. Don't mess with Jamaica, brother. I'm a little bit from Jamaica, Queens, too. Okay, cool. At least, at least for two summers with my dad. <laughs> and, and so really, they're not 
the extraordinary Negroes being read as extraordinary are not defying racist ideas. They're exceptional. They're not even really black. And, and, and also, the idea, what actually has happened, and we have seen this in, in really the last, since the election of, of Barack Obama, that what actually happens is extraordinary Negroes do not actually persuade away racist ideas. In a more profound sense, they bring upon white terrorist violence. And, and so when we look at you know, many of these terrorist organizations, historically, we see them challenging these black landowners, right? Challenging these black people who are sort of uh, striving up the ladder. Talk about, I mean, just, just because um, you just covered a lot of ground in that, but I want you to pause on this for a moment okay. because as smart as this audience is, um, some people may not just really fully appreciate that the lynching era was an era directed at extraordinary Negroes. Yes, yes. So we're, we're of course told this theory, and I call it a theory, that people were lynched because they, black men were lynched because they were, let's say, sleeping with white women. Well, statistically, even Ida B. Wells found in 1892 that the majority of people who were lynched weren't even accused of rape, let alone were actually being raped. I mean, these were people who were defying the racist order of the day. Uh, and typically, the most prominent way you can defy the racist order of the day was by succeeding and challenging and pushing through. And the, this was the, really the never-ending irony, is that when black people would push through these glass ceilings, they would be subjected to violence, or they would be subjected to terror. But then when they did not push through, right, because black people are imperfect, right? We have the people who I know that I have my days in which I'm striving, my days in which I'm not. But those people who are not striving, right, those people then are rendered the epitome of blackness, right? So no matter what black people do, they're subjected. They're either subjected when they don't work hard through, oh, that's really black, but then when they do work hard, they get terrorized. I mean, you could, you could hear Kendi in this moment sound like any soapbox preacher on 125th Street <laughs> at any moment in time in the history of Harlem. Except that he tells the story by presenting the evidence over and over and over and over again. And that's not to discredit those soapbox preachers, but I just, I want you to appreciate the summation because if you take the summation out of context of which it sits inside of this definitive history, you really miss how old this story is yeah. and how deeply problematic, I mean, so, I mean, by a show of hands, either in your own lives or in your parents' generation or your parents' parents' generation, the old adage that black people have to work twice as hard. And, 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 that if, and that if you didn't do that, um, if you didn't persevere despite all those obstacles and barriers, then you were essentially your own worst enemy. Right? Because, I mean, and, and this is where we get 
essentially to the present, because after all, in, in an era of post-civil rights, you have no more excuses. Yeah. And, and can you imagine, like, mathematically, right, we're asking black people, black people are asking black people to be twice as good, while simultaneously you have racist Americans looking upon black people as half as good. And, and so when, <laughs> Like, so how do you sort of operate within that environment, right? You're human. You can't human. be human. You right. can't be human, because yeah. as a human, you're not half good or twice as good. Oh, don't, it, don't stop, brother. Keep so going. I, I mean, <laughs> so, so, I, I mean, when, when people, I mean, because, you know, I, 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 I've made the case, you know, that I've, again, I've covered nearly 600 years of, of theories suggesting that there's something wrong or inferior about black people. And, and I not only sort of chronicle the, these ideas, but I show the ways in which these ideas are simply not true, or they're based on a series of what we now call alternative facts. And so, but it's, it's very, very difficult for people to think or to believe that the racial groups are equal. And, and, and one of the easiest ways for us to understand that the way groups are equal is because groups are imperfect just like individuals are imperfect, right? And that's really what makes black people equal to white people. It's not the extraordinary Negroes. It's their imperfections. That's what makes them equal. And what, the reason why that makes them equal is because that's what makes black people human. So, the, so the, there's, this is a really strong point. Um, because it puts a lot of well-meaning people in the hot seat for rethinking some of their core beliefs about racial progress. And so we've taken kind of it easy, um, but Kinde is, doesn't spare anyone in terms of attributing these racist ideas, including the twice as good idea as a racist one, mm -hmm. or the extraordinary Negro, in other words, triumphing over every barrier to be like what? Uh, to have that white soul. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Burrell, um, in a very well-meaning book, which I'm sure you might have even read before you started this book, <laughs> um, Brainwashed. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine that this book wasn't for you a perfect expression of precisely um, the conundrum that through the lens of history you recognize is not one you can escape. So Burrell's book essentially argued that black people have a public relations problem and that the solution, he's a, a pioneering African-American uh, advertising executive, um, and the solution to that public relations problem uh, was to pull up our pants to speak proper English, um, to craft a media campaign um, around being extraordinary people. Did I get anything wrong there? No. <laughs> so the, the reason why I want to sit this in, the, in, a, in an uncomfortable space, because I think that um, it's easy to fill in the voice of people um, imposing these impossible standards on black people as abstract others. Mm -hmm. um, but they're us. And that's one of the things that Kendi does is that he positions these ideas inside of people and spaces and moments that get really familiar as we move closer and closer to the present. Um, so maybe give a couple of examples 
of how, because I can imagine in our own families, I mean, I can mm -hmm. certainly speak for mine, that I mean, if it is a racist idea to argue that black people have a problem or need to be fixed or damaged by racism, I mean, when, when Donald Trump, as a candidate, referred to black people living in hell, my first visceral response wasn't that Donald Trump is a racist. My first visceral response is he's turned a mirror on about half the pulpits in black America on Sunday morning. He's turned a mirror on half of the mentors in after school programs talking to the black children they're trying to save. Mm -hmm. turned a mirror on all the parents who can't recognize that in their own children that they are imperfect. Because as my colleague Stacey Patton says in a new book, uh, that um, you can't whip black children into saving black America. So this problem, this problem, uh, the, the damage thesis, which fundamentally reinforces that black people are at in the end, inferior. You talk yes. about Spike. So one of the things we haven't talked about is how many popular culture references there are, <laughs> from Spike Lee to Tyra Banks to Rocky. Um, so maybe through the lens of one of those pop culture references, you know, sort of just lay bare um, why, say, a Steve Harvey was a favorite of the Obama administration. How about that? Well, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I'll segue to. <laughs> I'll segue to Tyra Banks, um, because I think um, I mentioned her in the book. I don't think I mentioned Steve uh, in the text, although. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah, and, and, but in the case of Tyra, I mentioned her because she had a show about 10 years ago about where have all the good black men gone. Do you remember that about 10 years ago? I don't know, what, we don't talk about it as much, right, as a community now. Uh, but there was all of this talk about, you know, there's no good black men, right? Uh, and so I describe sort of that moment. And then I also describe, do you remember uh, Alicia Keys and Drake had a song called I'm Ready? You remember that song? And Drake raps, good women are rare too. Um, and so you had basically black men or black people saying that black women, there are no good black women. You had black women or black people saying there's no good black men. So no good black men plus no good black women equals what? No good black people. <laughs> equals a racist idea. In <laughs> in all black spaces, right? I mean, I think, I think that's the hard part, is, is how clearly um, the universe of ideas that you define as racist um, are everywhere, that, that it, it has infected everyone. Well, and I think one of the... I'm getting, by the way, I'm getting all kinds of Q&A signs, um, <laughs> even though I'm gonna exec some, uh, Director Emeritus privilege um, for the moment. So... Um, but it is a good moment to remind folks that Q&A will begin shortly, so if you have questions, um, either ask a question or make a comment, but please don't do both out of respect to others who will be waiting in line behind you. Okay. Well, well, well I think that, of course, reading, 
these producers of racist ideas and chronicling them, because I really, I, the book, Stand from the Beginning, is really about the producers of racist ideas. And you know, I feel like I was a consumer, right, of, of racist ideas. And, and the more I read and, and described and contextualized the lives of these producers of racist ideas, the more I, I began to think and theorize that racist ideas were primarily produced for black consumption. For black people to believe that there's something wrong with black people. Now, we can understand this in the context of slavery, right? If you make your enslaved population believe that they should be enslaved because they're black, right? Are they gonna run away? No. And, and one of the, the function of racist ideas historically has been for, to really reduce and suppress resistance to racial discrimination, to racist systems. Because really, when we think about racial disparities and racial inequities, there's only two causes, right? Either the last 50 years, the black unemployment rate has been twice as high as the white unemployment rate consistently. There's only two causes of that. Either there's something wrong with black workers. Black workers are lazy. They don't want to work. They want to hang out on welfare. They just want to hang out on the street. You know, all these things suggesting that there's something wrong with black workers. That'd be the John McCorder thesis. Precisely. Okay. Right. Just to be clear. Or job discrimination. Right? And so, again, if you are a job discriminator or you benefit politically or economically from job discriminators right, and you want to continue discriminating, then you're going to produce racist ideas convincing everyone, but specifically those who are most harmed from job discrimination, black people, that know the reason why so many black people aren't employed is because of black people. And so ultimately what this does is, you know, I realize that the only thing wrong with black people is that we think something is wrong with black people. All right. So we have, we have two bits of business besides before Q&A. Um, we're going to talk about uh, President Obama, and we're going to talk about the NAACP, because uh, they're both timely, and they both capture in many ways the arc of the book. Um, so first, let's say something positive about President Obama. Right. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that because he hasn't done positive things, but I think the point of, of where we're going to end the book, in part, is a critique of President Obama, precisely on the terms. But you draw out a, passion, a passage from Dreams from My Father, his 1995 um, uh, book, biography, memoir, and, um, and I think it's a really great passage uh, because it captures a sentiment that's hard to find these days. Yeah. Um, you say that in quoting Obama himself, that the minority assimilated into the dominant culture, not the other way around. Only white culture could be neutral and objective. Only white culture could be non-racial. Only white culture had individuals. And Obama is saying this as a critique of the pressure he felt as a biracial child mm -hmm. um, navigating these two, two worlds. So maybe just expand, because this concept of individuality that Obama is expressing is an anti-racist idea, mm -hmm. as you describe in your work. So just flesh out for a moment 
that concept? Because we're going to juxtapose that concept to what shows up later. Well, I think, you know, as I think we've been really sort of knocking on the door, I think, this whole discussion that what racist ideas prevent black people from being is individuals, is being imperfect individuals, right? What, what, what racist ideas do is they generalize the individual negativities of, of black people. So we see that black person on the street, you know, stealing something, we're like, oh, these black people keep stealing, right? Or we see that black person, individual, right, acting lazy. Oh, black people are lazy. You know, that's what racist ideas have done historically. And in contrast, when we see that white person stealing something, we're like, what's wrong with that white boy, right? <laughs> you know, we see that white woman acting lazy. Oh, what's wrong with her, right? We individualize the individual negativities of, of white people. And so I think he, of course, Obama, was, was demonstrating and recognizing that that is precisely what racist ideas prevent black people from being, is individuals. And then it simultaneously, I think he was talking about, sort of renders white culture the standard. Right? And so you know, most white organizations in this country are not called white organizations. right? They're called organizations. So I call. I, I, you know, just like we have HBCUs, why well, I call things HWCUs, right? So I mean, we have historically black colleges, we have historically white colleges. But of course, those institutions don't want to be identified as such, right? But that's how we should call them. But, you know, generally, of course, whiteness and white institutions and white people have, have, have essentially been normalized. And I think he was referencing that too. So what happened? <laughs> And, I, and I, I say that partly uh, to be provocative, but yeah. uh, clearly, uh, let's just take, for example, um, you know, pick one. The Father's Day speech, the NAACP speech, My Brother's Keeper. I mean, at some point, um, uh, Obama expressed a litany of terms, and, and I'm going to cite them here uh, because <laughs> these are words that you associate with a... Um, a language of racism mm -hmm. that people may not be ready to accept, but uh, you refer to the race card, personal responsibility, colorblindness, no excuses, achievement gaps, and uh, what you call it is us as a kind of diet of words that all express the same idea mm -hmm. uh, that there's something wrong with black people. So maybe just sketch briefly the 1995 voice of Barack Obama uh, sort of critiquing this, this normalized whiteness as a category of superiority and good that essentially uh, maintains and holds as a unit of success the individual to black people who essentially um, are a group of people struggling. I think that's what is, I think, difficult to sort of understand. I think certainly by the time he becomes a candidate for president and ultimately the president of the United States, specifically during his first term, he's articulating what I would argue a collection of both racist and anti-racist ideas, or more specifically assimilationist and, and anti-racist ideas. One of his more popular or recurring sort of ideas during his uh, candidacy and first term was this idea of the legacy of defeat which essentially means that black people are, I don't know whether black people are more specifically African-Americans, and I'll get to that later, but black people have experienced 
you know, decades upon decades of discrimination or even individuals have tried and tried, you know, to get jobs and they've continuously been rejected um, for those opportunities. So be, they have become defeated. Right. And, and we certainly I'm sure each of us know individuals. Right. Like this. But there's no evidence suggesting that black people in general are like this, because just like we can have somebody who works less hard after being rejected by racism, other individuals we know do what? Work harder, right? And so that's how we don't have evidence that that's actually true. But he made the case that that is why you have people hanging out on the corners, you know, as he said in his famous race speech in, in 2008. But again, this has never been proven. And the reason why I said, I said, I don't know whether it's just African-Americans is because within the, particularly the African immigrant community, there's this perspective, or you can call it black immigrant community more broadly, there's this perspective that African-Americans have this legacy of defeat. That African-Americans, you know, are not just, you know, there are these opportunities that they're just not striving hard enough. Uh, and, and, and the reason why this is articulated is because this justifies the growing inequalities between black immigrants and African-Americans. Again, it's not, it must be there's something wrong with people, right? That's what racist ideas do. So I don't know whether he gathered or gained that idea, you know, coming in, you know, growing up, um, you know, as, you know, within those communities or what, but that's certainly a popular theory within that, within that community. Yeah. So it, 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 I would be remiss in that. I'm going to skip NAACP. Uh, there's a lot to learn about them and the, the need for new leadership by reading Kendi's book. I'll just leave it there. But uh, Angela Davis, so just, um, you know, just give us, I mean, you deploy, um, you talk about the founding of um, black women's uh, collectives from Michelle Wallace to Kimberly Crenshaw uh, to Alicia Garza and uh, co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Um, all of which is covered in uh, a chapter that really pays a tribute to the work of Angela Davis. She may be the one person in the book um, who trans, no, and it's okay, right? And we all have heroes, um, but who transcends a lot of the trappings that even someone like Du Bois um, falls prey to for much of his life, maybe not in the end. So just, just tell us why you love Angela Davis so much um, and, why, and why her example, <laughs> no really, why her example um, of looking at racism through lenses of, of sexuality and gender um, and her anti-racism may, may rise to a higher level than, than what we commonly associate with, with others like President Obama, for example. Sure, so I think Clearly. Who she voted for, by the way, right? Who, who she voted for. Yeah, she yes. voted for, definitely. And the book ends with her voting for, for him and, and her, as many, I'm sure, people in this room being involved in the celebrations you know, that night after he won. But I think Angela Davis, through her life or through the life of her ideas, I'm able to sort of tease out this sort of multiple layers of, 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 of anti-racist thought. And so, and what I'm talking about is that when I define a racist idea as any idea suggesting a black group or a racial group is inferior, I'm stating racial group or even black group in a very specific way. So I'm not just talking about black people in general, black women are a racial group. 
Right? And so what I mean by that is there are some people who would say something different about black women than they would say about women in general or white women. Right? And so what is that idea that they're articulating? If they say black women are ugly, but white women are beautiful. Right? What is that idea? That's a, and so black, so you have black women are a racial group. Black men are a racial group, right? Black youngsters are a racial group. So, so we see sort of gender and race sort of at its intersection. But then you also have, uh, as I mentioned, I think, earlier, you have black ethnic groups, right? And so you have this scenario in which African Americans look upon uh, African immigrants as inferior or, or, or West Indians as inferior, just as Africans and West Indians look upon African Americans as inferior. And they read them as black, not just as African American. And, or they standardize whiteness to render this black racial group inferior. So that's what I call in the book ethnic racism. And then you also have uh, what I call class racism. So the black poor are a racial group. And it's probably the most vilified, aside from black women, racial group in, 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 in the history of this country. And, and so, and black, just like black elites are, are a racial group. And so I, I describe the idea specifically stating that there's something wrong with the black poor. Not the poor. Right, but the black poor, the black poor are lazy, the black poor are undeserving of welfare. Uh, and I'm saying this all to say in reference to Angela Davis. And then, of course, you know, you have black lesbians are a racial group, black heterosexuals are a racial group. I'm saying this all to say because Angela Davis, I think, through her upbringing on Dynamite Hill in, in Birmingham, uh, she was raised by uh, anti racist socialists. Uh, in, in Birmingham, she also sort of came of age in the Black Power Movement. She studied uh, um, under uh, very prominent socialist and communist theorists uh, in the 60s, which allowed her to not render the poor, the working class, as inferior. Uh, when she was arrested uh, in, 19, in the early 1970s, she was arrested at a, at a woman's prison here in New York, in which she got to uh, engage with many black and, and Latina women, and that's when she talks about she developed her femi black feminist consciousness, and you know ultimately later in life, you know her, um, her 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 consciousness about sexuality. And so you had this person, I think, because of her life experiences and even because of uh, her educational experiences, who was really able to articulate really a more holistic anti-racist perspective, meaning she didn't see any black racial group as inferior. And typically, throughout her career, she was defending the most vulnerable black racial group, whether it was those black teenage uh, girls who were supposedly having too many babies in, in, in the 80s and 90s, or those uh, black people who are incarcerated, as she's been doing for the last 40 years. I mean, she has really been on the front lines, I think, again, of of defending the humanity and the equality of the most downtrodden black racial groups. So there are two mics in the back, and uh, you might want to make a mad dash for them because they're open right now. <laughs> Hi. Um, I had a question. Um, 
I'm wondering, I know what I feel, but I want to know your opinion on this. Um, I would like to know what offends you more or what bothers you more as far as like racism, as far as like if you have certain people in this society, you know, that you almost expect to be racist, that when racist comments come out of their mouth, you're almost not surprised, you're not shocked, right? So it takes you back, it takes you aback a little bit, but you think about it, you're like, well, I almost expected that. But when you have a situation where people of our own kind, uh, black people in particular, who are prejudiced against ourselves, who disparage our achievements, like for instance, the latest example I could think of was <clears throat> a gentleman by the name of uh, Jason Whitlock, <clears throat> who um, he has a show on uh, FS1, and there was an incident where LeBron James, of course, got his uh, his uh, house vandalized in, in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and his Jason Whitlock's uh, argument against LeBron James coming out and expressing himself about this incident was that he should not complain because he has money. He's wealthy. That as long as he has the riches that he has and his status is as high as, as it is in the society, that he should just take a seat and not say anything. Yeah. So for me, when I see something like this, it bothers me because I see a person who looks like me, who is up there spewing that craziness to somebody who looks you know, who was African-American who was going through the struggles. Mm -hmm. So I just want to know, from your perspective, does it bother you more when you hear, you know, people of a certain type that spew certain racist ideas, whether it be coded or blatant, or does it bother you more when you see people of our own kind disparage and bring down, you know, someone like LeBron James? Um, thank you for the question. I think without question, it bothers me more when I see and hear black people articulating racist ideas about black people, or even black people discriminating uh, and, and defending racist policies you know, against, against black people. And what Whitlock doesn't understand uh, is, and I'm sure, uh, is that studies show that the higher you climb in the economic ladder in this country, the more racial discrimination you experience. So, but, so, so his idea statistically has been disproven. But you know, these people who create these and produce these ideas, of course, as we know, they don't run on facts. <laughs> Intuitively, I know what it means, but please tell us about the title. Sure. So Stamp from the Beginning comes from a speech given by Jefferson Davis, who was at the time was a Mississippi senator who was going to become the president of the Confederacy, and he opposed a bill that would have defended, that would have provided education for black people to, uh, in Washington, D.C. in 1860. And he argued that the inequality between the black and white races was stamped from the beginning. That's pretty much what I thought. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Kendi. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. Oh, and uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to FAMU. I'm a FAMU graduate as well. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> but I just wanted to ask, so in your prologue, you talk about um, kind of this causal relationship that we have in our minds about 
uh, ignorant people created racist ideas and then instituted racist policies, right? But then you say that um, that's, that's largely ahistorical, mm -hmm. right? And you say uh, it has actually been the inverse relationship, that racial discrimination led to racist ideas, which led to ignorance and hate. So I wonder if you can just talk about that inverse relationship and the idea of racial practices coming before racist ideas, or practices becoming coming sure. before ideas. And Thank so you. again, I, I, I chronicle the producers of racist ideas. And again, I asked the question, why did they, or why were they producing these racist ideas at that time in history? And over and over again, I found that these people were not ignorant, that they were in many cases brilliant. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant guy. And he also, I also found that some of these people did not hate black people. Jefferson also didn't hate black people, right? Uh, or <laughs> and, and, and so I found that these people were creating these ideas, or their propagandists, like the Sean Spicers throughout history, were, were creating these ideas to defend existing policies. Right? Because again, the disparities that come out of those policies are either caused by black inferiority or racial discrimination. And they wanted, to, they wanted to hide that racial discrimination and make you and I believe that it's coming out of black inferiority. Thank you. Hello. Okay, so my question is, in your opinion, how can we debunk the myth of the unrapable black woman? So how can we sort of eliminate that? Yes. So first and foremost, this theory that black women cannot be raped is based on the idea that black women are hypersexual, right? And so, you know, even, I don't have, I don't have much time, even, you know, during the enslavement era, when white male slave owners were raping their their, their black women captives, they were making the case in their literature that these black women were coming after them to only reinforce this idea that yes, we're having sex, but it's because these black women keep coming after me, right? And so then it sort of, it really fashioned this idea of the hypersexual black woman that of course has continued uh, to this day. And, and so I think the way we um, uh, eliminate that idea is like, again, if, if really the ideas are coming out of the inequality, and the inequality is coming out of the policies, right? Instead of us trying to teach people that black women are human, black women are equal, black women are valuable, it's, it's better to eliminate the policies that are benefiting, that are, that are driving people to, and the inequalities that are driving people to continuously produce these ideas. Because we're not going to be able to educate away people who benefit from these ideas about the unrapable black women. Sorry, that went a little over. Hello, um, so my question for you is um, what type of impact or, or do you see your book as being a tool towards moving past anti-blackness? So I think, again, I think one of the, I learned so much you know, from the book. I learned just how many racist ideas I had consumed over the course of my lifetime. Even a person who was raised in a household of people, my parents were, came out of the Black Power Movement in New York, 
Uh, and you know, they raised me in progressive circles, but I still had produced these ideas. And these ideas had led me at times to, to focus my efforts on trying to civilize or punish black people as opposed to focusing my efforts on challenging policies, on challenging systems, on challenging nations. And I'm hoping that, you know, by people realizing that there's nothing wrong with black people, that will focus on the real cause of these problems. Hello, um, my question is, thank you for coming. My question is, how do we use history to better ourselves today? Because it just seems like we need more than just history. Well, what, what we should understand is that, as I was just describing, how people determine solutions to problems in their time is typically based on how they understand the past. And so, for instance, we have been misled into believing that the arc of American history is this forward motion towards racial progress. And that, yeah, at times we've sort of taken steps back, but we've continuously taken steps forward. Anybody heard this? And, and but what I chronicle and what we realize through actually looking at the facts is that, yes, we've had racial progress for, for a few, but we've had the simultaneous progression of racism. And, and so, yes, we can champion the progress, but we simultaneously have to challenge that progression. And so if you, again, are thinking that you're in a post-racial society that has arrived or is progressing, then when, and when you do not get into that college or you do not get that job, you're going to blame who? Yourself. And you're going to say there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with black people in general who are not in these places. And then that's going to cause you to look down upon yourself or look down upon those people, as opposed to challenging those policies and opening those doors, you know, as many of our ancestors have done. Before we sh shut it down. That was a good warm-up for the final applause, which will come in just about 30 seconds. So Du Bois, we didn't talk about Du Bois, but I saved, in some ways, one of my personal favorites for last. So this is what I call Du Bois' post-fact prophecy. And I'm just going to read the quote here from Du Bois. Accordingly, for the last two decades, we have striven by book and periodical, by speech and appeal, by, by various dramatic methods of agitation to put the essential facts before the American people. Today, there can be no doubt that Americans know the facts, and yet they remain, for the most part, indifferent and unmoved. Mm. 80 years ago. So this is, this is not intended to leave us in a mood of depression, but it is intended to give Kendi the last word about the limits of this kind of educational practice that we think is sufficient to the problem, because you really want to draw people's attention to power. So last word. Yeah, I mean, the, the way in which, the, the, basically the book ends with that quote and, and other ideas, 
that ultimately state that education and persuasion is are tactics that have long been used and are tactics that have long failed. It also makes the case, and I make the case, that even protests are really a short-term solution to solving these, these problems. Why? Because again, if you protest racist power, and racist power, because of the pressures of that protest, sort of eliminates that, that, that racist policy, when the protest dies down, and it's again in the benefit of, that, of racist power to have that policy, what is racist power going to do? Reinscribe that policy, right? And so what that ultimately means is that the long-term solution, the solution we should all be focused on to creating an anti-racist America where racial inequality doesn't exist because racial discrimination doesn't exist, where black lives matter because humanity right, matters, is, is challenging and getting into positions of power. Right? We're not going to create an anti-racist community, an anti-racist nation, an anti-racist world unless anti-racists are in positions of power and those anti-racists are held accountable by the anti-racist common sense of the people, meaning the common sense is, oh, it should be equality. Right? That's the common sense of the people. Right? And, and those, of course, that common sense and those leaders, of course, put anti-racist laws and policies in place that ensure equal opportunity, that ensures that black people or any group of people will able to strive and live and have happy and joyous lives in this world. All right. Kendi, Dr. Kendi. All right, that was again Ibram Kendi speaking about his book Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America with Khalil Gibran Muhammad at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. I'm going to be reading that book soon. In his speech accepting the National Book Award, Kendi spoke about his daughter, Amani, who was six months old at the time. Amani means faith in Swahili, he explained, which, he said, took on new resonance as the first black president was about to leave the White House and a man who was emphatically endorsed by the KKK was about to enter it. Kendi said that even after spending years looking at the absolute worst of America, its horrific story of racist terror, he never lost faith that for every killer of the mind, there was a lifesaver. That in the midst of the human ugliness of racism, there is the human beauty in the resistance to racism. As always, thanks for listening to this show. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Next week, Nigerian author Ayobami Adebayo on her first novel, The Truly Haunting, Stay With Me, 